Hello everyone, Dallas Rogers here and welcome to this year's Festival of Urbanism and City Road Podcast Book Club. It is so great to have you along. We've got an exciting collection of conversations with authors and readers this year and all the details are on the City Road Podcast website at cityroadpod.org. But today I'm talking with Anna Clark about her new book, Making Australian History. And I'm talking with Anna in her home. And of course, on the day that I was visiting Anna in her home, there were renovations going on next door and planes flying overhead. So if you listen real closely, you'll be able to hear the jackhammers and the aeroplanes in this interview. And I start by asking Anna how she came to write a history of Australian history. Yeah, thank you. Um, Well, most of my career has been spent looking at questions around, um, I guess, for want of a better word, the history wars, so why Australian history is contested. Uh, And it's been very, you know, striking to me researching them, just how contested that national story is, you know, in terms of change the date with regard to um, Australia Day or the um, Black Lives Matter statues wars, Um, or teaching Australian history in schools. You know, we had a recent federal election and just beforehand the federal government, the then federal government was suggesting that Australian history needed to be more sort of positive in schools. So I've been following and studying these history wars now really since my PhD about 20 years ago. And I've been struck by the curious, I suppose, paradox that despite these, these heated public debates, there has actually hasn't been a longer sustained story of Australian history before. So, you know, they cause all these these debates, they cause so much heat and contest and politicisation, but what's the narrative of this? And so I thought um, that might be a good, interesting hook to start this research. Hmm. And I guess the difference there is that some people write Australian history so they go into the archive and they dig into the archival material and they write a narrative about Australian history that's right and what you're doing here really is writing a narrative about that process and the people that have constructed yeah that's right so most of my colleagues write histories about what happened and their archives might be letters and diaries uh, might be in the library might be oral histories and so on and for me I suppose my sources are these generations of historians and history makers. Mm. I wanted to, we don't have time to go into all the chapters of the book. And as I mentioned, it, it's thematic and you do cover a large timeline in the book when you're going through the themes. But for me, and I think I tweeted this out when I read the book, the book kind of has a pivot in the middle of it. And it's around the chapters that are consecutive around family, gender and emotion. And I really liked the sort of pivot at that point in the book. I I felt like the themes were relatively familiar up to that point. And then something different happens in those three chapters. And I thought we could spend a little bit of time talking about them. And the first one is family. And I know that you have your own family history and you've said you don't really like talking about that so much. But I was interested in just the idea of family and history. And I think in that chapter you say there are family histories and then there is history and you want to just focus on history. But in this moment 
when we're reflecting, I think, collectively as a society on settler colonialism. Mm. Is it important to think about family histories? I Absolutely. Um, and it's interesting you picked up on some sort of pivot because I didn't intentionally have, I didn't intentionally pivot the book around there. But a lot of my research has been around the way communities see themselves or the history, their own history, collective history, communities and families. And, you know, in amidst this question about the sort of politics of the history wars, I've been interested to see to what extent do those bigger national debates about identity and belonging, to to what extent do they seep into communities around Australia? And they do. Uh, And so I think one of the important sort of threads of any discussion about national history is how that interweaves with people's own life stories and community histories. I think one of the reasons why there are the history wars in the first place is because they touch on something about us, both collectively but also individually, uh, and that we see ourselves individually in the story of the nation through sort of touchstones where we might imagine ourselves, you know, in war or in the moment of settler colonialism or in stories of migration and so on. So those kind of big turning points nationally tend to resonate, I think, at a community level when people can see themselves in them, in there. So there is absolutely, uh, I, I think it's a very fruitful area to think about that, that overlap between the sort of local uh, and community and the general and the national for sure. Mm. Might be worth saying a little bit about the history wars. What were they? Mm. Um, so the, the history wars, I suppose, are a slightly, you know, they're, they're a simplistic and, and blanket term that's at once unhelpful because it kind of describes a political divide over Australian history where perhaps um, historical, national historical narratives that were largely celebratory um, and depicted a sort of a, a progress narrative of Australian expansion and democratisation and, and the giving of rights and so on over the course of the 20th century. After World War II and into the 1960s and 70s with the sort of civil rights movement and land rights and so on, that gentle narrative, if you like, or that uncomplicated progress narrative start to be start to be nudged in uncomfortable ways you know progress for whom rights for whom you know whose country whose nation who is sees themselves in this national identity and that movement of historical revision really pushed and prodded that sort of comfortable national narrative to the point where there were serious ruptures and serious kind of challenges to be made and that was not, um, you know, that that raised really important questions in Australian history about how do we tell an inclusive national story? Um, what's the sort of role of the history discipline in in telling the national story, and so on? But not everybody agreed with the revision, and so there was a kind of a backlash against that historical revision, if you like, particularly in the nineties, nineteen nineties, with um, historians such as. Geoffrey Blaney and Keith Winshuttle and the election of um, John Howard's government in 1996, there was a sort of a pretty clear rift emerged between what's been perhaps unhelpfully termed the black armband view and the white blindfold view. And I say unhelpful because history is not black and white. It's not left and right. But at another level, it, it shows that history matters and, and the political traction and the kind of contest of the history wars at one level, it, it, it's it's simplistic and politicised, but at another level, it it shows 
deeply the sort of power of the national story and, and the impacts that it can have. And these debates have ebbed and flowed really since, you know, to, to varying degrees of, of, of heat and also dying down. Yeah, so for want of a better word, the History Wars describes that political contest over the past um, that we see fire out, you know, sort of um, fire up occasionally around the statues. Um, just yesterday there's a story in Tasmania about a statue being removed in Hobart um, of a former premier uh, governor. And uh, so, so they do sort of spark up occasionally and really reveal, uh, um, show that how, how contested history can be. Then the next chapter actually is about gender and mm -hmm. gender and history. And I, th I thought this was really an uh, interesting chapter. And basically what you put forward there is an argument for feminist historians and feminist readings of history. Why is that so important? I mean, the obvious answer is because men have been writing history for so long. Mm. And there is actually, I'll just read you one little quote, which I really loved in here. I think I remember it off the top of my head. It's about that women weren't absent from history and historical narrative, but the spaces that they inhabited were, and they were not described in the rich historical detail as other mm. places were. So we think about the kitchen mm -hmm. and childbirth and mm -hmm. these places. Why is feminist historian and feminist history so important? Yeah, it really, I guess that that sort of push from feminist historians um, in the 1960s and 70s really highlighted that the discipline itself was gendered. And it's not just, as you say, that men had been writing history. It was what does that mean for the practice of history that it has been written and largely controlled by men? So even women who were writing history in the 1920s say were writing it in along those gendered lines where the, the sort of private and the intimate didn't make it into the history books. And the great challenge, I think, from feminist historians was to say, well, what is history and who is a historian? If, you know, history isn't just made by governors signing decrees at a desk, it's also by the domestic servant bringing him tea. What does that tell us about colonial society? Or it's not just about, you know, the, the sort of patrol, patrilineal inheritances of the gentry. It's also about what about the illegal abortions that took place? And so basically this sort of important generation of historians was saying, you know, there's a lot that is not included in history and it's not just about adding women's stories. It's actually in order to add those stories, we need to change the whole way that history is, is produced. Um, we need to ask new questions of the past, but also we need to do history differently. So if you're trying to tell the story of the domestic servant in a colonial governor's house, how do you find that if she's not in the archive? Um, if you want to tell the story of an illegal abortion where a woman died or a child is given up for adoption, how do you tell that if it's not in the archive? So there have to be new ways of, of doing history and new archives have to be sort of developed and new skills have to be honed in order to tell those stories. And by doing that, you're not just what they call adding women and stirring, you're actually changing the sort of practice and the form of history itself, which I think has been a very powerful uh, intervention. And it's gone on to influence a lot of other ways of doing history, I think. Super interesting. And I just read 
Priya Gokul's book, Insurgent Empire, and she goes to some lengths in that book to, when she's setting it up to say, I haven't told the stories of a lot of women because the archive is just, there's no stories of women mm. in there. How, how do you create new archives to, to deal with that? Yeah, that's a really good question, obviously. I think historians are increasingly good at using silence as a mechanism to help tell the story. Like the silence tells us stuff as well as not telling us mm. stuff. So why are there gaps? You know, why wasn't the domestic servant part of the archive? And that tells us about the structures of the archive. Not that you can just have a history full of gaps. That doesn't work. It's like having an exhibition with a lot of blank spaces, obviously. So, But I do, I do think the gaps can tell us something. But there are also, you know, different ways of, of reading what's there, reading gesture and reading between the lines or reading with the lines and sort of understanding, you know, what might his wife have said or what might his daughter have done. And then, of course, there are sort of new archives or not new archives, but a, an acknowledgement that there are archives beyond the capital A archive in journals, uh, botanical drawings, Embroidery. There's an incredible embroidery by a group of convict women who couldn't write or read, but they produced an incredible sort of piece of, of, of needlework. What does that tell us about them? You know, so we have to, we can look at material, archives of material culture, archives of the environment, and perhaps intimate archives, letters, stories, songs, folk songs, for example, poetry. It's about expanding our repertoire, I think, so that we can listen to different and diverse voices from the past. So I'm just going to wait till that plane pops over. I think that takes us actually quite well to the next chapter, which was about emotion. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, you know, there's actually a lot going on in this chapter. It seems to be about emotion and, and bringing the more subjective to, you know, history. But, of course, there's underlying that it kind of goes back to the history wars really mm. this positivist view of history where we can actually find the truth of the archive if we get rid of our subjective views versus the kind of more post-structural if you like where view where we can't find a single truth there are probably multiple truths there's questions about how much the archive can tell us yeah so i wanted to ask you about the emotion part and how that fits into, well, both as a practice, how do you deal with the, if you're going to engage with subjectivity and mm. these things, how do you bring that to the narrative, but also how they played out in this longer history mm. of, of the history wars? Yeah, so I think one of the interesting things about the history wars is is not just the sort of the crude politics of, of you know, left and right and conservative and progressive but it's actually, I think, a really interesting methodological slash generational debate about what history is uh, because it's not, you know I, know, I know a lot of conservative historians who believe that um, you can't just be a dispassionate historian or, or, and, and that history shouldn't just be bolstering the nation. Likewise, there are plenty of examples of, um, you know, left-wing histories that are bolstering um, look at China, for example. You know, what's the function of history in in that role? So just drawing those political lines isn't necessarily helpful. So I thought 
what was interesting around the history wars was thinking beyond those kind of divides and thinking about what histories are bring, what historians are bringing over time. And, and for, for a long time, the professional discipline of history is seen to be sort of objective and truth-seeking uh, and empirical uh, and founded on the principles of the Enlightenment to tell the truth. It's about knowledge. It's a science. But over time, we understand that, that science is also loaded that science also has an agenda. And that's not to diminish what it does, and that's not to diminish what scientific historians have done in terms of the research they have undertaken. But it's just to say that objectivity is also positional. Uh, And I think one of the interesting things that emerged as I was thinking about the history wars is, you know, what are the ethics of us today in a settler colonial society looking back over... Um, what has happened in Australian history in terms of how do we get at some of those silences that you alluded to there? How do we understand the role of archives and indeed historians' complicity in constructing narratives of Australia? And again, not wanting to necessarily diminish the work that historians have done in the past or that archivists and librarians have done in the past, but to think about it and understand it in terms of you know questions about truth-telling that we're faced with today and reconciliation. So I think there's a sort of an ethics that I wanted to bring to this about, you know, what's the ethical obligation of doing history in Australia today? And for me, that's as a non-Indigenous historian. What what role does history have in this this place at this moment? I think you answered that. My other one was actually, you know, can the archive ever provide us with definitive truths? Oh, that's a great question. Um, When I'm Talking to my students, I like to say the past is what happened. History is how we interpret the past. So the past is fixed. It's not up. But history is actually up for grabs. So archives might have traces of the past, but it's up to us as historians to do that act of interpretation. And that's why history is contested, because people interpret differently. But at the same time, that doesn't mean, I think, letting a thousand flowers bloom. You know, with with a historical education and a sort of a historical literacy that comes with with studying, you know, understanding sources and interrogating some of those sources, they're not all equivalent. You know, one archive is not necessarily equivalent to another archive. Um, So it's about developing the skills to sort of compare those archives and we might not ever get to, you know, a 100% sort of overhead transparency that can overlay the past and be there, but history is always going to have to require certain leaps of imagination. But I think the more we understand about that significance and texture that the act of interpretation, how that relates to the past is really useful because it not only shows that you and I might disagree about the past, but it can also show that interpretations change over time. So it's not just necessarily disagreement in the moment, but we revisit and we revise and that's also part of the process of history. History is a doing thing. The past is what happened. Super interesting. And I feel like that's where the book sort of goes to in the end. You say, you know, you kind of challenge the idea of objective history and you show how complicated and messy and political history is. But then right at the end, you defend history as a discipline Mm. and you defend historical method Mm -hmm. and all those things that you were just talking about, Mm. how to identify archives, how to work with archives, how to cross-check your materials. 
Tell me a little bit about that, like literally what, yeah. do, what do you teach students in, in that sense? Yeah, that's an interesting thing you picked up because I sort of got to the end of the book and I was like, oh, I don't want this to be like a giant put down, you know, that's so um, Freudian <laughs> uh, and, and also not helpful because in that intergenerational discussion, of course, then I am going to be subject to the same sort of critique, I hope, and I, as, as I understand historical sort of revision and interpretation to be. So I did want to emphasise that there's that there's inheritance as well as disruption, that the practices that I have inherited you can actually see in a 19th century historical education, that there are many things that come through, like source criticism. You know, if you see an archival source, you need to ask questions, who wrote it, when was it written, who was the audience, and so on. And these are skills that are, that are practised to this day. But I also wanted to show that history despite its many, I suppose, ethical shortcomings, its complicity in a settler colonial nation like Australia, it has been very capacious. And your original questions about feminist history show that, that it can take on and change. And it's full of actual, actually, it's full of self-reflection and self-criticism so that it has continued to change and shift and adopt and adapt. I guess the question that I came to at the end of the book, which is a very, um, I suppose, a zeitgeisty moment that we're all living through now, is can this discipline, which has been so complicit in the architecture of colonisation, can it be part of the solution? Can it be part of Australia's future? Is a discipline with its origins in the Enlightenment and the Age of Empire also part of telling, you know, a truth-telling moment, if you like. And as a historian, you know, I like to think that it can, but I'm constantly pushed in uncomfortable directions by self-doubt that maybe it can't. I think every discipline in Australia is, you know, the built environment professions are dealing, mm. you know, built environment, literally building stuff, fences, roads, surveying, are literally the tools and practices that dispossess right. Aboriginal people That's of the right. land. And we're asking the same questions. Can we reconcile with that? Yes. Can, can private property and construction, you know, how do we reconcile with those things? There's a very um, obvious, um, speaking of material cultural archives, um, a very obvious uh, image of that that I reminded by you when you mentioned that, which is out in um, the Hawkesbury River. There's a rock engraving that I was shown um by a guy from the Metro Land Council. And uh, it's an incredible, beautiful rock engraving of, um, of an Aboriginal spirit uh, by army. And next to it, it in, chiseled into the stone, next to it is a surveyor's mark. And so uh, you, can, you can see that as a, as a layering of, of colonisation, but you can also see it as a conversation, I suppose, mm. um, if we look back on it. And, and this, this sort of... This is the ethical challenge, isn't it? Can some the can a discipline like like history, like the built environment, can it decolonize in this moment where we're sort of struggling to find a future Australia that can encompass all of these narratives? Mm. I think a great place to finish would actually be to go to the question that you posed yourself there, which was which I was actually thinking about. You're you're writing a book where you're going back and looking at past historians and the way that they've 
constructed narratives and the broader social context in which they're writing and mm-hmm. the political debates of the time, the archives they've got access to that we may or, you know, we might have more or less material now, whatever. But somebody will do this to this book mm-hmm. in the future. And I guess the short question is, um, what do you think about that? But the longer question might be, what do you hope historians will make of this work in the future? Mm. Oh, thank you. Um, I feel like this book is a start. It hasn't been done before. So obviously I just got an email yesterday from somebody saying, you know, why wasn't Faith one of the chapters in this book? And I've had a few of those emails and they're, I'll, you know, I'm, I write back and say, you know, you're not going to be surprised that that thought did already cross my mind. It wasn't a blind spot. It's just a, you know, it can only have what it can have and, it, and, and at some point you have to press print. But I suspect that there will be, you know, from colleagues and, 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 and other readers, how would I have done this and what would I have included? And I think that's really healthy. I hope that this book isn't simply a story about the history of Australian history. I also think it, I hope, that by taking a sort of a thread or a theme, in this case, Australian history, it tells actually a history of Australia. So by looking at these texts and and um, outputs of Australian historians, you can actually map changes in Australian society and culture at that moment in time. Like it's really interesting that in the 1890s, Nobody wanted to identify any convict heritage, and now it's really cool. Over the course of a hundred years, it's that that has really changed fundamentally, and and that that's interesting. That tells us something about Australia, I think. Similarly, over the course of the twentieth century, there was very little information about the stolen generations, for example, in professional, historical, academic writing uh, and work. Yet, it was faithfully kept alive by Aboriginal families in non-official archives, as in, you know, not, not built archives necessarily, but, but and that has changed as well. So there are, it, it's, it's, it's a conversation. Australian historians have produced these kind of texts that, that are snapshots of the nation in time, and by looking back over those texts and snapshots, we can also kind of map Australia a little bit, I think. That's my hope. I felt like... Throughout, there are a couple of little jokes for other historians um, weaved in here. So this one is actually about the cows that escaped oh, yeah. um, very early on. And you set this up in one chapter. You say, oh, you know, the the, um, the cows have escaped. Where have they gone? Um, and then if anyone who's, like, read this history, you know where they are. Um, but then you come back a little bit later and you, you tell us where the, the cows are. They're out in the cow pastures. And then you say, oh, so that's where they were. Mm. I just wanted to, like, that seemed like a bit of a cheeky historical joke to have. <laughs> I just wondered what you thought of it. Yeah, um, I guess that's a comment on, to, to enlighten listeners, I guess, um, in the early colonial settlement, cows escaped uh, and it caused great distress because they were the colony's only cows and the, cow, the colony was really on the verge of starvation. Crops had failed experimental crops had failed, um, supply ships had crashed, uh, the, the colony was on reduced rations, and then these cows escaped. And there's sort of a great, not great, but, you know, very sort of vivid description by Watkin Tench uh, about this moment. And he says, you know, he describes how distressing it was. 
in the course of researching this book, I was interested in um, Aboriginal forms of history making. And I went out to Bull Cave um, in Western Sydney, where there is this incredible rock art of, of a bull. And uh, it's thought that this was a this is a form of contact art of, of, of Aboriginal people basically, you know, writing an account of the things they saw and sort of actually documenting a moment of, of early colonial history. And I thought it was, you know, it was it was just a neat contrast to think, you know, we've we've got all of these colonial narratives, diaries, letters home, government dispatches, and they're from really one perspective. And yet at the same time here are, of course, Aboriginal people making history. Uh, and and sometimes it just just takes a little bit of a shift in what we consider capital H history to think about what some of those other forms of history making might be and how we might integrate them into our own sort of story of Australian history, if you like. And if you're going to write the story of Australian history, I wanted to sort of think about the obligation of including those very obvious uh, non-colonial historical narratives. And Bull Cave is a is a is a cool example. I'm glad you thought it was funny. <laughs> Thank you. Um, um, because I thought you weaved in, um, like, there's like the, the famous parts of, you know, Sydney history, Bellalong, mm. the cows. And I thought you weaved them into the narrative and you, you had them there, but you, you weren't going to recount them in the way that they are often recounted. And yeah. I think that the bulls is a really good example of how you – created a, an alternative narrative and there you're just talking about using an alternative archive mm. as well to, to mm. follow. Yeah, yeah I, I didn't want um, – I didn't know what I wanted the book to be but I had a pretty strong sense of what I didn't want it to be and I didn't want it to be going over the same things in the same way that, you know, I didn't want it to be sort of just strictly chronological or strictly narrative because people have come to Australian history at different moments and the story of what is history, if we're asking the question, you know, historiography is is the story of history, but what we understand to be history changes over time. So I sort of wanted to think about it more like a map, if you like, a temporal map, where the boundaries of that map of what's in and what's out of the history story change over time. And in that moment, you know, from until probably until quite recently, you wouldn't have included a site like Bull Cave as an example of history making. And it's not an easy one to include because there's no author, that's not dated, there's no sort of provenance attached to it. But the question I want to ask in this book is, what happens if we don't include a place like Bull Cave in the story of Australian history? And to me, that's much more um, alarming than the questions about what happens when we do include it. Thanks so much for talking with me. Pleasure. Thanks for the questions. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Anna Clark about her new book, Making Australian History. It's a real cracker. We've got many more interviews just like this. Just head over to the City Road Podcast website at cityroadpod.org. See you next time. Thank you.